This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Go to GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Hello, and welcome to Daily Drive. It's Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. The pandemic has been particularly hard on suppliers. We'll take a deeper look at a big one in a cash crunch that's coming up a little later in the program. First, let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. If you want to compete in the red-hot dealership buy-sell market, it takes a lot of financing. Too much for some. LMP Automotive Holdings had aspirations to acquire dozens of dealerships, but now the small, publicly traded retailer is changing course. LMP says it plans to terminate its seven pending purchases of numerous dealerships, and it is also considering a sale of the company. LMP said its board of directors feels its stock is undervalued. They can't be feeling much better after Wednesday when the shares fell 21% to $5.25. A year ago, they were trading for more than $20 a share. Stock had been a big part of LMP's strategy to help pay for at least some of its pending acquisitions. LMP bought its first stores last year. It has eight franchised dealerships and four used vehicle locations. Some parts of America may see more autonomous long-haul trucks on the road soon. Google's self-driving technology affiliate Waymo and truck fleet operator C.H. Robinson Worldwide say they will team up to test automated trucks with safety drivers in Texas in the coming months. Waymo is integrating its self-driving software and sensors with Daimler trucks. It has been testing with J.B. Hunt and UPS in Texas, where Waymo hopes to deploy fully autonomous trucking technology in the next few years. Meanwhile, a competitor, self-driving truck operator Too Simple, has been testing driverless trucks with no human safety drivers aboard in Arizona, The company says it has completed a half-dozen 80-mile driver-out runs between Phoenix and Tucson, which is where Too Simple has a partnership with rail giant Union Pacific Railroad. You can learn more about that on this week's Shift, a podcast about mobility, with Automotive News' Pete Bigelow and Leslie Allen. And in personnel news, Unifor National President Jerry Dias says he is taking time off to deal with health issues. The 63-year-old is serving a third and final term as head of the largest private sector union in Canada. Its 310,000 members include hourly workers at Detroit 3 plants, those at parts suppliers, and thousands of people in other industries. In other news, Toyota says it has resumed normal operations at factories in Canada and the U.S. Output had been disrupted at six assembly plants after protests over pandemic policies shut down a key border crossing, cutting off parts deliveries. Also on Wednesday, police in Canada said they stopped a convoy of trucks that they suspect was planning to cause havoc in Windsor, Ontario. Windsor Police Chief Pam Mizuno said at a news conference that six or seven trucks originated in Ottawa were stopped by police on Tuesday, about 155 miles from Windsor. Protesters across the country have issues with vaccine and mask mandates, and many have called for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to step down. And finally, when it comes to EVs and range anxiety, many drivers worry they won't be able to comfortably go on a road trip. Now, finding a vacation rental with an EV charger is getting a little easier. 
Airbnb says more than 850,000 of its hosts now have electric charging stations. Last year, Airbnb added an EV charging filter so that electric vehicle owners can easily find hosts who let them refuel their vehicles while they sleep. And that's the news you need to know. In good times, auto parts makers tend to do well, but when they carry too much debt and production gets snarled, it can go bad in a hurry. We'll look at one recent case after this. Listen to Fred Hayes, service manager at Temecula Valley Buick GMC, and Philip Candido, fixed operations director, talk about their experience with GoMoto in their service drive. Before GoMoto, the backups in the service lane were due to not being able to get to the customer in a, in a timely manner. There's times where menus are passed over where the advisor forgets to tell them, hey, it needs its major service. And now with the GoMoto, customers are presented with a maintenance package every time. The time freed up from not having the customer sitting in front of them every single time they come in. It helps them be more efficient. It helps them focus more on the customer's concern and the, the maintenance and service of the vehicle. Before GoMoto, we would average approximately 130000 in service gross. The kiosk in the service drive doubled the gross profit in the dealership. It's amazing, 100%. Using the GoMoto kiosk makes the dealership more profitable. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency just like Temecula Valley? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. That's G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters. Merging two big companies is never easy. Throw in a massive technological shift and a deadly pandemic, it's almost a surprise that more manufacturers aren't in dire straits. This week, Morelli, formed by the combination of Calsonic Kansai and Magneti Morelli, told lenders and customers it needed help to pay its bills. To untangle the situation, I called automotive news editor Lindsay Chappell in Nashville. Lindsay Chappell, welcome to Daily Drive. Great. Thanks. Thanks for getting me. So, Morelli, very large supplier, is in uh, financial distress. It is uh, entering sort of the Japanese version of Chapter 11, uh, holding off some payments while it tries to secure better financing. Big picture, what what went wrong? Why did why did these suppliers? Why did this supplier uh, they got put together and and made so big, celebrated? Uh, why did it? How did it go off the rails? I think they're dealing with three issues at the same time. Uh, the first issue is that the effort that they're making to do this in the first place, to create Morelli, to to weave together a big Japanese supplier, Calsonic, with a big European supplier, Magneti Morelli, into one seamless organization is just hard to do. It's You're talking about... 54,000 employees uh, scattered all over the world, sometimes doing redundant things with each other. It's just, I mean, they, they were very upfront saying this, this isn't going to be easy, but we're going to do it because in the end, uh, there are going to be great benefits by bringing together our, our two um, treasure chests of, of uh, competitive know-how. Uh, so they were they were already swimming against that. The second thing that happened 
is what happened to uh, everybody else in the supplier world is the auto industry suddenly said, hey, uh, let's electrify. Uh, <laughs> you guys come up with all the electrical objects that we need to make this possible and get back to us. So here you had companies that had worldwide renown and exhaust systems and uh, cooling systems for engines suddenly looking at each other at their brand new board table saying, okay, we got to come up with some new stuff here. So at the same time that they're uh, pulling together their stepchildren into one happy family, now they've got to have their stepchildren do all new stuff, all new technology. And in fairness, they're doing okay at that. I mean, they they were just recently awarded an e-axle, uh, for example. They, hmm. they'll, they'll get through that. That's fine. But then the third thing happened to them, uh, which is the same thing that happened to everybody else, including you and me, is that the coronavirus knocked everyone's feet out from under us. Uh, so while they are, while they are blending their families and while they are, uh, trying to come up with a, a new portfolio of future products, somebody turned down the faucet on their revenues. And the reason I think that that's, that's particularly hard in this case, you know, you say, well, it's hard for everybody. It's hard, it's hard for Joe Blow and his, his family uh, down the street. It's hard for everybody. The reason that it is particularly hard for Morelli is that they had to borrow a whole bunch of debt in order to create this company. Uh, they're a privately held company, so we don't know exactly. There's not much transparency. Uh, but they, it, it's reckoned uh, the Japanese media is kicking around the number $9.5 billion in debt. Uh, this is for a company that uh, the last we saw, 2020, they had $11.5 billion in revenues. So you get this precarious uh, uh, new system. This is going to work if everything goes well and suddenly things aren't going well. Uh, you got a problem. So those three things sort of smack them at the same time, I believe, is what's happened. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I will uh, I will say a good word for the Japanese business media. Uh, they are they tend to be really plugged in, and even when the sourcing is opaque. Uh, they they gen generally are pretty darn accurate. So uh, if they're saying if they're saying it's nine and a half billion, that's uh, probably a pretty good bet. And I think you know what you're saying about the supply base being under strain. You know, especially in COVID, uh, in the when this coronavirus economy, you know, we've seen automakers make surprisingly large profits because they've prioritized their highest profit vehicles. Uh, they have better, many of them have better labor contracts than they used to. And when they idle a plant, it doesn't cost them nearly as much as it used to. Dealers are in the U.S., most dealers are doing really well because the limited products they have are super high value. They're selling a lot of them above sticker price. But the suppliers have just struggled because production is down, you know, whatever it is, 10 percent, 12 percent worldwide. And it's inconsistent. Uh, they don't get really good forecasts for what's going to be made and when. Things are changing. We, we applaud the automakers for getting more nimble and making decisions on a weekly or even daily basis instead of monthly and quarterly. But that is really hard for these big suppliers to plan for.
And and you just said the key word, big suppliers. It's hard for the big suppliers to get up on top of this crisis. Uh, smaller suppliers right now, you know, uh, you're getting uh, orders from uh, your customer, the automaker, and uh, sorry, uh, we got to cut production again today. And uh, but try harder tomorrow. Well, tomorrow, oh, I'm sorry, we got to cut production tomorrow too. Well, you're a little guy. You can say, you know what? Let's go ahead and start making parts because sooner or later they're going to buy these parts. Well, you can't do that when you're a big multinational corporation making systems and com components on a, a just-in-time basis. You know, you 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 really. You, you really get in trouble on a week to week basis when your customer is having trouble on a week to week basis. Yeah. The complexity is, is so immense. So along with this debt, right, this was all taken on under the new ownership of uh, private equity. KKR is the big, uh, big private equity company that uh, bought CalSonic and then merged it with uh, Magneti Morelli to form the new Morelli. What's, right. What is the experience of private equity? What's what's their track record in in auto suppliers and in the auto space? Uh, it's mixed, you know. But for every uh, for every happy story, there's there's a little bit of drama and, and uh, disappointment. I mean, we we can always think of the the colossal uh, uh, issues that have happened in in the past decade or so. I mean, you don't have to look too far to remember. Uh, the acquisition of of Chrysler uh, th through private equity, you know, maybe it was not a, a big red letter date in the world of private equity. Uh, there, there have been some good ones though. I mean, it. it I think private equity uh, is probably a, a pretty good play for some sectors of the supplier world because some sectors of the supplier world are consolidating and uh, they're small shops, relatively speaking. So if you're uh, possibly able to be acquired by a big private equity firm who's going to roll you up together with five of your competitors and try to make sense out of you, you know, in the end, that's probably a good thing. You know, we can share administrative uh, costs. We can share overhead. We can, we can work on R&D together. Um, when you start, though, getting up closer to the cream where you're buying big companies that, uh, you know, are, are pretty unique in and of themselves, then you, then you start getting into, you know, uncharted waters. I mean, mm -hmm. what, when you come down to it, you know, what synergies are there really between a Japanese uh, maker of thermal systems and a, uh, a, a an Italian maker of lights. <laughs> you know, and maybe in, in a big clean sheet of paper, you can create that. But just as often, we've seen over the last two decades in the auto industry, where business consultants have come into a business and said, "Well, wait, hang on, just a minute. You're making thermal systems." And lights, you know, where's where's the common denominator there, pal? Let's sell off one of these and focus on the other. So, in that sense, KKR, the private equity company, is saying let's let's bring these two organizations together because we see future X or future Y. 
will they will they ultimately succeed at it? I don't know. I mean, uh, the speculation back when they when they took this path with Calsonic and Magneti Morelli was maybe they'll get them all healthy and muscular and then maybe sell them off in some other form. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not obviously ready to do that as of February 2022, if in fact they are having these financial issues. But I'm not sure we can say that this is a mistake of private equity yet. You know, this is this is the danger of private equity, where you want to operate with a margin of X percent and unknown factors come out of the woodwork like a global pandemic. Gee, that wasn't in the business plan. That really messes up our target margin. Uh, that's that's the uh, the problem with private equity. Yeah, certainly in this case, we do know it's a it's a problem of debt. <laughs> it seems like the private equity, and I feel I'm speaking mostly anecdotally. You know, here in Southeast Michigan, they have a tend to have a lot of success with sort of medium sized suppliers. And I'm saying even medium up to maybe a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah. That where maybe they're too small to go public. They're too big for a family in most cases. Uh, and they can they can make some hay there. But yeah, these these big ones with this this case, it, like you said, it may not be because it's private equity, but private equity tends to be aggressive. They put on, took on a bunch of debt. If all the if the tide lifted their boat. Maybe it would have worked out, and uh, of course, uh, the the tide is not lifting supplier boats. No. Thinking about these large suppliers, this reminds me, and especially since the Magneti Morelli, since both both halves of Morelli came from big companies, I keep thinking back to Delphi and Visteon, which were you know spun off from GM and Ford respectively uh, 20, 25 years ago, and and both went into bankruptcy. Uh, they had, you know, huge, uh, un- huge, hugely uncompetitive UAW contracts. Uh, I don't remember the debt situation exactly, but I think there was this idea that, well, maybe these units don't make a lot of money for their parent companies, but if they're out from under the automaker that has owned them through their history, they will then be able to sell more to. Uh, other automakers, and they can really increase their revenue and, and maximize leverage their their technology. And it just seems like that's that's easier said than done. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm not sure what report card we would give to um, Ford and spinning off uh, the Visteon Holdings, which was enormous prior to that, or to General Motors spinning off all of the the pieces of Delco and Delphi. Uh, and in some ways, you know, they had no choice but to sell them off. I mean, they 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 had to get out from under them. They had to had to raise capital. They had to to try to shore up their the automakers themselves. So, but they were they were very strategic about it. They were, um, you know, of a mind that this is this is going to be a competitive advantage to be rid of our in-house parts companies, that they are holding us back and one for one reason or another, either as you said, because you know, we're just we're having to pay the 
wages of a car maker to people who are making stamped parts. And we can perhaps, you know, get better financial deals than that. Um, you know, but at the same time, they were limited uh, in terms of technologies. You know, I, I can't I can't dismiss the power of Delphi. Delphi, you know, has done amazing things with with their product lines over the last 30, 40 years. My gosh, they were the you know, they were a treasure chest of innovation for so long. But at the same time, there were other people out in the world. There were people, companies in Japan and companies in Germany and companies in France doing very clever things. And as long as you have this arrangement uh, where you're locked into a given supplier, uh, the more you're going to miss out on it. And I think that was uh, largely what was motivating Nissan to spin off Calsonic. It wasn't that Calsonic was a bad company. Calsonic Kansai was itself a merger between Calsonic and Kansai, two different companies. You know, Nissan didn't, didn't want to get out from under them because they were a bad company. It was because... Nissan wanted the benefit of getting competitive bids from all over the world. Nissan was investing heavily in North America and they were looking at North American suppliers, you know, people who were doing innovative and competitive things in Detroit and, and Ohio. And why can't we use those parts in our Nissan cars that we're making in, in Tennessee and Mississippi? And similarly, uh, maybe not altogether similarly, uh, you know, Fiat wanting to spend off uh, Magneti Morelli, uh, we can do without them. We we could. It's a big world full of innovative companies, and we can we can cherry pick what we want. We can we can we can spin off uh, Morelli and and best wishes to them. But let's let's focus on our needs as an automaker first. Well, Lindsay, it's always a pleasure talking about the supply chain with you. It's such a such a large and, and fascinating part of our world. There's a lot to say about it. Thank you, sir. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. You can get all the news on the supply industry at autonews.com. Thanks to Jack Hallauer for editing today's show. Thanks to the ANTV team and web editor Victor Galvan for their help. And thanks to you for listening and making this show part of your daily routine. Now, let's get back to work. <laughs>